Hi there, esteemed audience, and welcome to another episode of Middle Grade Ninja. I'm your host, Rob Kant. As you know, I'm the author of Banneker Bones and the Cyborg Conspiracy, the third in the Banneker Bones trilogy, which will be available May 15th of 2020. It's available for pre-order right now. Go ahead, get set. Make sure that May 15th, you've got your copy. You're ready to see how the Banneker Trilogy ends. Uh, if you're new to Banneker Bones, you can get the first book, Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees, as a paperback, a uh, audiobook narrated by David Radke. And you're listening to this, so I assume you like listening to things. Or the ebook for Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees is free, free to download whenever you're watching or listening to this, wherever fine ebooks are sold. Uh, so go ahead, get hooked on the series. Come see me with money for Banneker Bones and the Alligator People, and then in May, Banneker Bones and the Cyborg Conspiracy. Uh, under the super secret pen name Robert Kent, I've written novels for older readers, such as All Together Now, A Zombie Story, The Book of David. Uh, the Book of David is a five-volume serial horror novel about flying saucers and all kinds of crazy stuff. If you're curious about that, you can get The Book of David, Chapter 1 by Robert Kent uh, as a paperback, and the ebook of Chapter 1 only is uh, free to download, so uh, go ahead and put that on your device as well. Check it out. Get hooked. Uh, come see me with money for the rest of the story. We'll have a good time. Uh, as always, um, to find out what's going on with the show, who our upcoming guests are going to be, uh, as well as the archive of all old episodes and written interviews with hundreds of uh, other authors, literary agents, editors, publishing professionals, folks you'd be interested in, uh, head to middlegradeninja.com, uh, delete the rest of your uh, web uh, bookmarks, get rid of all your uh, anything else you might have on there that's slowing you down. One website is all you need, middlegradeninja.com. Throw out Twitter, it's just ruining your life. Middlegradeninja.com is for you. Uh, so I couldn't be more excited. Uh, today we're going to be chatting with uh, Anna Mariano. Uh, who is the author of the brand new book, Love Sugar Magic, A Mixture of Mischief, the third in a trilogy, which is available, I believe, right now, um, when this airs. <laughs> uh, Anna, how are you today? I'm great. <laughs> Thank you so much for uh, making the time to, to chat with me. Um, I'm uh, me. looking forward to this conversation. I think we're going to have a good time. Yeah. Um, so the best place to start is for esteemed audience who hasn't been uh, actively going through old interviews and uh, your books and everything uh, about you online uh, in preparation for this is give uh, esteemed audience kind of an overview of your background. Yeah. Uh, hi, esteemed audience. Nice to meet y'all. Uh, so I'm Anna Mariano. I'm the author of the Love Sugar Magic series, as Rob already mentioned. I... I'm just going to read my bio because I'm not great at improvising. I am the author of the Love Sugar Magic series. Uh, and I grew up in Houston. I graduated from Rice University and then got an MFA in writing for children, which is a super cool degree to get. Uh, I work as a tutor and part-time teacher now in Houston, um, which basically means sometimes I'm tutoring and sometimes I'm in schools um, teaching writing or um, sometimes I'm helping people with their homework. Uh, in my free time, I like to knit, study American Sign Language, and play Full Contact Quidditch, which has had some consequences recently. So much to unpack and, and, and so much to ask you about, but I know esteemed audience is foaming at the mouth. Rob, ask her about Full Contact Quidditch. What is this and what is this recent incident that's occurred? Mm -hmm. um, so I, I play Quidditch, the main 
thing there that you know starts conversations um which means basically so 12 to 15 years ago i can't count exactly uh some college kids at middlebury college in vermont were like hey we should play quidditch so they got together on their little college and invented some rules to this game that normally is played on flying broomsticks uh but they just played it with normal broomsticks and they ran around and they threw dodgeballs at each other and the rest was history uh so since then quidditch has developed uh it got a lot of traction in college on college campuses now it's moved to community teams as a bunch of kids like graduated and wanted to keep playing um there's I think still more than 300 teams in the U.S. and then something like 20 and 50 international teams. I'm just ballparking because I like don't have the numbers. Um, so they have you know World Cup tournaments with you know Hong Kong, Brazil, Slovakia, and Slovenia. Um, I usually travel with Team Mexico, even though I'm not a citizen, so I can't play for them. Um, yeah, so it's it's a really big, great community, international community of people who run around on broomsticks and tackle each other, uh, which is a good time. And I have played for seven years, and everything had gone well. You know, I was always with the poster child for it because I'm kind of a small person. I don't know if you can tell from this Skype because I can just be really large. Um, but, <laughs> for, those, for those listening, she just leaned toward the camera like a towering uh, Godzilla attacking the city. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'm kind of a small person, and so I was always the poster child for like, oh, well, in Quidditch, you in control of how much tackling you actually get, or how much physical contact you actually get, and as long as you, you know, keep yourself safe, and your team kind of teaches you how to keep yourself safe, and everything will be okay. Um, even though you're playing on, on, at a size disadvantage in many cases, because there's people of all genders, there's people of all sizes, there's people of varying age teams. And then this September, unfortunately, I, uh, took just a pretty bad tackle and broke my pelvis in four places. Um, oh, so I'm no longer the poster child for like, Quidditch is so safe, even for me. <laughs> it was very much like a fluke accident. I've taken a lot of tackles. That one just, you know, unfortunately, this guy landed on top of me. Um, and it was just like, you know, just kind of a bad, like, oh, no, everything is horrible. Um, but uh, so it's been a couple of months of recovery. I got to spend some time with a walker in a wheelchair, with a cane, just about any mobility aid you can think of. I've at least tried it out. Um, crutches, but I didn't like them. And now I'm almost back to you know, getting back to full recovery. Well, that's good to hear. I'm, I'm, I'm glad you're you're on your way all the way back. Yeah. But, oh, oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What kind of sport is that? You know, because yeah. I, I, I read about it. I'm like, well, that's, that's extremely exciting. I would love to pay Quidditch. But now you're describing it, and I'm wondering if people of all ages and, and all sizes – uh, if, you know, I get somebody that's uh, 20 years older than me and uh, works out every minute of every day and it's just this huge block of muscle coming toward me with a broomstick, uh, which I imagine might, might, I might be in danger of being impaled, I would think would be the, the number one injury of everyone running around tackling each other. You know, everyone thinks that and it's really not. Um, even my injury, I, I like to tell people, 
you know, I had my, I was in the hospital. I had uh, some, they did a, actually a really cool surgery. I know people don't always like to hear about it, but um, pelvic injuries used to be like a bigger deal because you couldn't walk on them. And now they have a surgery that will like stabilize things so that you can walk a little bit. Um, it's not important, but basically. Interesting. Uh, so I did have, yeah, like I had surgery, I had all this stuff. Um, but, you know, later on, I checked and I had, you could kind of see the little like very mild bruise from the broom down around my knee. Um, and that was it. <laughs> like the broom was not in play causing any of the major injuries. Uh, it just gave me like a little bruise, which I've had a bunch of those little like right around your knee, little line of bruise where the broom hit. Um, so I'm like, yeah, even in my case, people don't really get impaled by the brooms because you kind of know where your broom is. And that's one of the things we practice a lot um, with our tackles is like you tackle and you move your broom to the side. Uh, <laughs> just, just is it courtesy or is there some sort of penalty for intentionally not doing that? You just want to like instinctively, you don't want to, cause it's, it's touching you as well. Um, you don't want that, that, because we usually use PVC pipes. You don't want that rod just like sticking anywhere into anything. You just want it out of the way. Um. Well, I would imagine if uh, you're playing on a campus and everybody's just, we're all friends here, we're having a good time. Even then, some there's always one that's going to be, <laughs> I'm extra competitive and I'm going to look for a, for a little edge. But by the time you get to, you said you're traveling with the, the Mexican team uh -huh. uh, around. Um, yeah, there has to be really competitive people who are trying to figure out ways to get get you smacked over the head. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I've never seen anyone like hit someone with a broom. I've seen one person like throw broom. Play was stopped, you know, and and he was immediately like got in big trouble. Um, but you can't. Yeah, I don't know. It definitely is a physical sport. People definitely are like trying to win especially in texas we have some national championships in austin like austin has championships um a lot of texas players are the ones world cup and you know won the international uh championships so texas has a lot of really competitive players but like people generally are not trying to like make illegal tackles and we have a lot of rules you know no hitting above the neck no hitting below the knees um rules about kind of how you can make contact and how you can't so i think people generally follow those rules there's there are injuries but a lot of times um it's like on par with what you get in other sports uh not football because we don't have as, as many concussions but like you know ankle injuries knee injuries and then concussions a little bit basically what we get <laughs> oh and uh, I'm, I'm sorry to make you relive this this traumatic event uh, <laughs> no. But I mean, I still really like Quidditch. Uh, I still, you know, I'm still involved with my team uh, Houston, the Houston Cosmos. I uh, I'm getting a jersey this season, even though I probably because they're so cool, they have like stars on them. Um, I probably won't play for the rest of this season, but I am getting a jersey, and I have my Quidditch book coming out at the end of this year. So yes, I saw that on your website. I want to make sure I, I ask you about that. So what's uh, what's the Quidditch book going to be? Um, the Quidditch book is a YA novel, so not as much for the middle grade listeners, um, but it's a YA novel about someone who starts playing Quidditch in Houston uh, <laughs> right after high school. She's, um, it's sort of a, it's a Cinderella retelling very, very loosely. So she's got a stepmom to contend with. She's got a, you know, pretty 
pretty extreme grounding situation. Um, and she kind of uses Quidditch as a way to escape that because it's technically, I'm getting exercise. Don't you want me to get exercise? You can't ground me from physical activity because that would be so bad. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, she goes to a tournament instead of a ball. She loses a cleat instead of a slipper. But um, basically, you know, Quidditch is sort of a vehicle for her to come of age, find her place in the world, feel like, you know, the future's not that scary anymore. Um, yeah. And, you know, I wrote it in major part because Quidditch was that for me, uh, especially when I moved from Texas to New York. I had kind of a lot of like, oh, my family's not here and I don't have as many uh, friends around as I used to. But and my program is very small. My writing for children program um, was like 12 people. And yeah. <laughs> so when you're in like, you know, classes all day with the same 12 people and then, you know, all your hobbies and interests are so overlapped that, like, you all have really strong opinions about very minuscule things, like, you know, the best part of Harry Potter is the characterization. No, the best part of Harry Potter is the world building. Ah! <laughs> um, no, the best part of Harry Potter is that it ended and she shouldn't be back. <laughs> 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 Anyway, when you get a lot of people with strong opinions together, sometimes it can just get like overwhelming. And there were only 12 of us and we had a lot of internal fighting, even though we loved each other. So it was really nice to be able to go on the Quidditch team and just have different people who did different things. And, you know, we could all come together and be a team, but it was also like a little bit of an escape. So when will the book be available? Such a big question. Ah, to, to, to be determined. <laughs> yeah, fall of 2020 is what I've heard. And I haven't seen, um, we haven't, some things are changing. So we're, we're redoing the title. Uh, it was originally announced with the title, but that title is dead to the world now. Uh, <laughs> that's why I keep calling it the Quidditch book. And um, I'm in the middle of some revisions right now. So there's a lot of things changing and I haven't gotten a, a solid release date. So we'll see. You call it what Quidditch through the ages, but some <laughs> some play on that, I suppose. Yeah, maybe not. Maybe not that one. Just to avoid the. So, uh, there's a very real possibility that J.K. Rowling is going to read something that she wrote. She has already. I assume that J.K. Rowling owns all of the Love Sugar Magic <laughs> books and has read them multiple times. So this will be something uh, additional reading. But just in case that that's not true, does that does that make you extra? How do you how do you feel about that prospect? Oh my gosh! You know that I, I honestly hadn't thought about it until I saw it in your questions. Um, oh, good! I'm glad I could add to your anxiety. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's so weird because I wasn't, and this is kind of getting into like me as a child. As a kid, I really wanted to write books, but I really didn't have a sense of like who did that, like how that was a thing. I didn't get how books came to be; they just seemed to spontaneously appear in bookstores and libraries. Um, so it's, I, I wasn't like a person who really thought much about the authors of books, which is kind of funny. Like, I know some kids are much more, especially the kids I go to school visits and they'll be like, oh, yeah, like, you know, Rick Reardon came last week. And I'm like, oh, wow. Um, I just still have trouble thinking of Rick Reardon as a real human being. And you've already met him. OK. <laughs> Um, That's the worst act to follow if you're, if you're a comedian. <laughs> They're like, please come up and follow Chris Rock. No! <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I, I don't think anyone's ever told me that before a presentation, which is nice. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. <laughs> but, but, yeah, so I, 
like in some ways it doesn't even really register because it's not like I grew up thinking you know when I meet JK Rowling this is what I'll tell her because I just didn't think of her as a human being and still almost don't except that she's on Twitter and I regret that um (laughs) (laughs) so but Okay, so now that I'm an adult and I can understand that celebrities are people and that writers, uh, that books come from authors and all of that stuff, um, I just have, it's very weird because I'm not, um, like, I think that currently in life, J.K. Rowling and I have some different opinions about things that are very important to me. Um, So I don't know, like, I would hope that she would read it and be happy with like oh this is a community that has been built around something that I developed and look at how inclusive it is and look at how you know the people who are part of this community really want to make the world better um that's how I feel a lot about the Harry Potter Alliance um which is a sort of like nonprofit um group that does a lot of literacy charity and just other charity stuff in general um with the like under the umbrella of like we're Harry Potter people and we care about the world and we want to make it better um, you know, so I hope that, that would be the reaction. And then also, like, you know, people finding a place where they belong. But, like, also, I have trans characters in that book. Yeah, I saw that she had stepped in it on Twitter. And when that happened, yeah. I just immediately swerved. But I don't <laughs> want to know that bad things happen from my favorite author. I'll just assume that that doesn't exist. So I haven't, I haven't <laughs> followed up or read the controversy. Yeah, it just, um, so I think, like there just seems to be a thing with like british celebrities are going down this route it's unfortunate um they i don't know i don't know why it's happening um i mean not that there aren't celebrities everywhere that are doing it but like british celebrities just seem to be especially influenced um down this idea that like i don't know trans rights are somehow infringing on women's rights and i just think that that's not yeah it's there's a lot of detail I could get into, but also it may not be worth it getting into it on this pol- on this podcast particularly. I think it doesn't make sense. Um, a lot of people think it doesn't make sense. And so I'm like, oh, I hope she would read it and like it. But then maybe she would be too influenced by these particular opinions to really like it. So I don't know. Um, I was writing what I saw in the Quidditch community. So I'm re- I really stand by, you know everything that's in that book like I said Quidditch is an all-gender sport it's one of the only sports that has specific rules in place for its trans players um which is basically to say you're welcome and your gender is what you say it is and it really doesn't change how you play the sport like um which is very unusual I mean there's most sports don't really have any setup for um trans people to play and it's become like a big source of discrimination so yeah yeah that's uh the world's on fire i don't, I don't know what to say <laughs> yeah no no it's just so anyway so i'm proud of the quidditch community for that reason and then it's so then it's weird to be thinking about jk rowling reading it um but you know like i said i hope i hope that if she did read it she would be pleased with what she saw and what the community has kind of grown into fair enough um so <laughs> I, I did want to ask more about your your the traumatic incident of your of your pelvis being shattered although for the record um 
Middle Grade Ninja loves J.K. Rowling. That's why we have Harry Potter figures up here, those of you watching us uh, on, on, on the YouTubes or wherever. Um, we also 100% oh, I... support rights for, for trans people, and if uh, J.K. Rowling was disparaging those, that makes me very sad, and I suppose I'll, I'll, I'll knuckle down and actually read the article. Uh, well, I, mean, I love J.K. Rowling. I love the Harry Potter world. So it is, you know, to use your nuance and, you know, yeah. <laughs> it's one of those things, especially when, when a person gets to be so high um, above the, the rest of us, uh, any kind of a celebrity. Um, like my go-to is Mel Gibson, clearly a terrible human being. Does that mean I don't ha I have to go back and retroactively not like Braveheart? I really liked that movie. That was, that was a pretty good flick. Yeah, I mean, you know. <laughs> Uh, there's the whole, you know, your fave is problematic, and like most most people are. So, you know, again, it's up to everyone to kind of decide what they're comfortable reading. Personally, I'm still comfortable reading because it's been such a big part of my life. Um, there's also a lot of great new books that are also fantasy and also, um, you know, coming from people that, you know, maybe I have my views line up with theirs more. So maybe the books will speak to me more. Um, I've been on several panels with just amazing writers talking about this particular topic. Um, I was just recently with um, Henry Lian, the author of Peace Brought Chen, or the Peace Brought Chen series. It's like three books now. And um, C.B. Lee, who wrote the Not Your, Not Your Hero, Not Your Sidekick. I don't know which one came first. Um, series. And... <laughs> Um, and I've talked with a bunch of other authors. I'm, I'm just forgetting someone on the panel. Anyway, uh, and I've talked with a bunch of authors who are writing fantasy now, who are kind of saying, like, yes, we exist in a world where um, Harry Potter has a huge influence on fantasy. I mean, I write middle grade fantasy. People are making those comparisons. And people are asking me how I feel about Harry Potter. And it's like, I love Harry Potter. I mean, you can see when when Leo gets to a chance in my series, sorry, in case you didn't know, the main character of my Love Sugar Magic series is named Leo, um, and she is a magical baker. And when she discovers that she has these magical baking powers, like, one of the things that I really loved about writing that was that you got to kind of explore that joy and that, that feeling of something really magical happening in your life that is what a lot of us loved about Harry Potter. And it's really, it was a big influence on many of the middle grade and YA fantasy writers so yeah definitely we definitely see the lineage and then also sometimes break from it I 100% agree that there are uh, new fantasy books coming out uh, every day, one by many wonderful authors. Hopefully, many of them will find their way here. <laughs> we'll have a have a good chat. So, absolutely, yeah. read as widely as you can. But I do try to separate the art from the artist, even when I know the artist is a defendant. Like, I did a workshop this weekend, uh, and I recommended uh, that one of my students read a story called "Hills Like White Elephants" by Ernest Hemingway because it's the definitive example of the type of dialogue I wanted her to be able to read. Mm -hmm. And I had to preface it with, "Yes, we know Hemingway was a monster. If you don't Google him, you'll find out." However, plenty of monsters in that area that didn't also write "Hills Like White Elephants." So the story itself. I, I think is a good or worse. It's got cards. Somebody else I like to pick on that, that doesn't oh, matter yeah. how many terrible blog posts he writes. I'm still going to not, I'm never going to feel bad about having loved Ender's game. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, like, you know, Zunicide 
the whole book is is like a manifesto on love and tolerance which is awesome and it's a great book and then he does that and it's just like whoa how did you aren't you the author who wrote you cannot know someone and love them or like I'm paraphrasing but like basically that was the like if you know someone you can't help but love them and then here you are hating people um so it's kind of weird sometimes when you see like authors who clearly are trying to put these great values I just got an echo uh uh, are clearly trying to put these great values and trying to work through these like you know these things that are trying to send these messages that are so positive and same thing with Harry Potter right Harry Potter has a lot of positive messages and um you know studies actually showed that reading Harry Potter makes you a more empathetic person because I mean all fiction does but Harry Potter specifically um was able to make kids more empathetic on topics like immigration and bullying and um, racism because of like, allegorical racism, immigration and bullying and things that were happening in, in Harry Potter. Um, so Orson's Got Card is another one where I'm like, how did you write this book and then become this person? What are you doing? But Maybe you found it. <laughs> Just never shared the identity of the true author. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. Whoever you are, anonymous author of Ender's Game, we love you. <laughs> uh, that's the new. I, I heard some people saying like, "Oh, J.K. Rowling no longer wrote Harry Potter." It's like, no, you know, because we are like authors are human, so we have these great ideas, and then sometimes we mess them up. The other thing that uh, worries me a little bit as an author who uh, has definitely uh, been wrong uh, more than once in my life. Uh, not not about anything as, as substantial as some of these things we've been discussing, but but definitely it's it's I I've, I've been known to say the wrong thing, and it would be ignoring every bit of my history to think I'm going to somehow get out of this without saying at least one or two more wrong things before I'm done, or at least right. trying out a wrong idea before I get corrected. Um, and the thing that um, worries me just a little bit is that uh, progress moves so fast, and that by definition. I, I like to compare it to a joke where a joke like Lenny Bruce is a comedian that would have absolutely knocked us all dead. If we were hearing his type of comedy for the first time in the 50s, 60s, you try and listen to Lenny Bruce now. That, that's not that edgy, man. Or I try and tell people how I felt about Bill Hicks and then they'll go back and listen to it. Like, man, he really, he was really upset about Diet Coke. Well, you weren't there at the time. He, it was a thing. Um, and, you know, uh, because comedy is subversive, that nature of what's subversive, what's going to be challenging to an audience changes as an audience becomes more progressive. And same thing with, I think, the world overall, despite some really glaring uh, examples, is mostly moving in a positive direction. I try to guide people towards Steven Pinker, who I think does a really nice job of showing statistically that this is the best time in all of human history to be alive. Oh, yeah. And I... I hope and I and assume that that's good. That's a trend that's going to continue. So on a long enough timeline, I hope that the books that are being written after my death are more progressive than the books that I was able to write during my lifetime. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think that's why it's so good to have, like, to not cling so tightly to the canon, even though it's great to have it and it's great to know, like, you know, hey, these are books that in the past were amazing. I think it's always super important to me to like also push the new books and to say like hey here's you know 
here's the books that are coming out now that people are writing with like you specifically in mind. I'm talking about uh, talking to me. Here's the books that people are writing with you specifically in mind. Here's the books that are going to prepare you for like the world you're living in now. And then also we can read the stories that have, you know, resonated with people over the course of years and generations. Um, I think it's also good, like you were saying, to, you know, if you're going to give someone Hemingway, yeah, say he had some problems. Um, I have a lot of kids who love Roald Dahl. I loved Roald Dahl growing up. Um, and he's another author who, if you look at him with, you know, um, through a modern lens, huge problems. Um, and I just like having that conversation with kids and being like, hey, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, fun to read. And it's such a great story. But can we talk about the Oompa Loompas and that whole situation and why um, I have like a, just because it's come up so many times, I basically have a script uh, to talk about the Oompa Loompas. And it's like, hey, did you notice that they all come from one country? Do you know any other businesses where all the workers come from one country? What does it, what does that remind you of if you get all your, all your workers from one country specifically, bring them to a different country to work and don't pay them? Uh, so I go through that little script a lot of times uh, in a school year. And it doesn't mean that the book is not still good or it doesn't mean that we're not still, you know, loving parts of the story, but it just means that we're being aware of like, oh, hmm, hmm. Some of the things in here may not line up with our values that we have today. And I'm sure I've already had people actually uh, talk to me about the Love Sugar Magic series um, and be maybe not so happy with certain things that Leo does because of environmental reasons. Um, I think she tosses some food in the trash at one point and someone was like, it's killing the planet. And I was like, oh, you're right. But that's what Leo did. Well, maybe the curious to only ever write historical fiction. <laughs> well, all fiction will eventually become historical fiction. Um, I think that about Beverly Cleary, because she wasn't intending to write historical fiction. But at this point, uh, you know, you read about kids like paper route in their little town. And I'm like, huh, this is basically historical fiction now. Like, nobody has computers. Nobody knows... Uh, so yeah, yeah, everything will eventually become historical fiction. Yeah, uh, time marches on. Good, good times. <laughs> okay, well, I tell you what, we uh, keep keep um, uh, tiptoeing right up to talking about love, sugar, magic. Uh, so let's make sure we do that, and then I promise, esteemed audience, that I'll go back and I will ask you specifics about how you break your pelvis when you're not many feet off the ground. And, and I would assume Madame Pomfrey comes right out, fixes you up. But <laughs> oh, <laughs> this is not the footage I have read about. But we'll we'll save that. We'll tease that. Let's uh, let's talk about a mixture of mischief, which is available uh, now as as this airs, and is the third in your love magic. Um, sorry, love sugar magic uh, trilogy. Um, if you would just give a steamed audience who who hasn't uh, just read them uh, an overview of the series, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so the series is uh, about the Lagronio family. Um, Leo is the youngest sister in this family. Um, they live in a small town in Texas, and her family runs the town bakery. Um, they're a Mexican American family have been living in Texas for many generations, like a lot of the Mexican-American families in Texas. Um, and they've been running this bakery for many generations. 
And Leo discovers in the course of the first that her family doesn't just do baking, they also do particularly magic baking to sort of, you know, help the people of the town out. Um, they can do things like love spells. They spells to help people listen or see better, um, usually metaphorically, sometimes literally. And so she, in the first book, she's not old enough to know any of this yet. All of her older sisters have been sort of initiated into the family magic, but Leo has not. Um, so in the first book, she decides that's not really fair, steals the family recipe book, starts trying to do some spells all on her own, and it goes exactly as well as you would imagine, which is to say not very well at all. Uh, and, and, then, and then Leo really has to sort of clean up this mess that she's made with trying unauthorized magic work. Uh, book is doing a, you know, doing a little bit more magic with, along with her family, but still runs into a problem because the ghost of her abuela just appears in her room suddenly. Uh, not as a ghost anymore, but like tangible, physical person um and it turns out that ghosts are coming back to life all over town and leo's been working on some new types of magic doesn't think that she is the reason for this but everyone else seems to and so she's kind of trying to solve this mystery of how did these ghosts show up how do we get them back where they belong um and why did this happen in the first place and then so that brings us to book three <coughs> where leo and her family are you know, actually having a pretty good time of things, which is unfortunately unusual for them. The bakery's doing really well. Um, her cousin is coming to town. And then suddenly a whole series of bad luck, what, what feels like bad luck, um, happens to the bakery. Things like the rent increasing and another bakery planning to open up in town. And it's a very small town. And so they, you know, can't help but think, oh, no, another bakery, that's going to be competition. And some of their family uh, heirloom objects, like things that they use in their magical spells and in their baking, start disappearing. Um, and all of these things seem just like a streak of bad luck, but it turns out there is sort of a reason behind um, a relative of Leo's has visited her in a dream. Her, her grandfather has visited her in a dream, um, but he turns out to actually be here kind of messing with the family um, trying to get Leo to uh, abandon the magic that she's, the sort of magical path she's been on and join him on this different path. Um, and it's kind of one of those books that has a lot of twists and turns. I, so I have a hard time talking about it without giving away too much. But basically, Leo has to sort of decide how she's going to react to this sort of new threat and decide how she wants to use her magic. Um, because, you know, she has a lot of people telling her this is the way that our family does it, and she's not really um, totally sure which is the right way. So, and then, how does it end? Don't know. <laughs> <laughs> With love, sugar, and magic. <laughs> there we go. Uh, it, it ends with book four, I'm hoping. <laughs> uh, so I think the trilogy is complete. I have a hard time saying it because I don't want to believe it in my heart. Um, but the, for now, there's no book four planned. We're planning to leave it at three. And I'm I'm pretty happy with where it ended, at least. But never say never, right? Uh, yeah, basically. I just refuse to say never because I'm like, maybe someday. I'm, I'm holding out. Uh, go 
get the Quidditch book out, maybe write a couple of others, uh, but then <laughs> come back and give us a little bit more uh, Love Sugar uh, Love Sugar Magic. Um, who is the ideal reader for this series? Who do you envision writing this for? Hmm. Well, I think a lot of times as a writer, kind of the only audience you know for is yourself. Um, some people, so a lot of kid lit authors will say like I'm writing the books that as a kid I wanted to read um oftentimes I just feel like I'm writing the books that I currently want to read uh not not even going back because I just loved middle grade uh still um but I I do think that that was more true for me of with my first book and then as we as we've gotten on to the second and third books um I was more influenced by my students. I was thinking more about sort of the things that they, um, the reactions they had to the books, the things that they maybe, you know, wouldn't see in the books and I wanted them to see. Um, one of the things that I am thinking about, oh, and then, you know, my family as well. Um, so I, I got, brought Leo's cousin in, um, her cousin JP, who's like, one year older and he's kind of cool and he just shows up and is like hey I'm here now um partially because I hadn't really put any male relatives um and in book one especially I got a few people come back and be like huh so there's really no boys in this book and the ones that exist aren't that <laughs> <laughs> um which like you know what sometimes that's allowed um but and I, di I didn't even agree with them because I think Leo's dad is one of the best characters um and you know her friend brent is a main part of book one he makes some mistakes but like so does leo um so i didn't agree with that necessarily but i did feel like after two books of telling everyone my bio um those books mentions that i didn't grow up with sisters um many sisters and so people like to say like oh you know you wrote a family of five girls five can i count five girls <laughs> <laughs> you must have sisters and tell me about them and I'm like no I just have brothers they're okay I guess um, so is that uh, skip, skipping real quick to that because okay, yeah. that was something I wondered about because I knew you were a middle child mm -hmm. writing about the youngest child and I wonder is there a little bit of wish fulfillment that obviously you want to bake with magic I assume <laughs> <laughs> but is there some wish fulfillment to, to longing to have a family of sisters well um, I mean, yes and no. I definitely didn't grow up being like, oh, I'm so sad. I'm tired of my brothers. Like, I love my brothers. I also was the youngest child for eight years. Um, my little brother is much younger than me. He was, um, you know, we really wanted him and had a lot of troubles getting him. Uh, so he's eight years younger than me. And he... When he kind of showed up, it really changed things for me because I had been the baby um, for a long time. And I was like very, you know, probably a little bit annoying and a little bit whiny and thought the world revolved around me. And then my little brother showed up and it was like, oh, there's other people that need to be taken care of. And it, you know, it was a kind of a cool experience to be old enough to be pretty self-aware. Um, and I remembered like, I had been, I had seen other people get little siblings, and I just was like, okay, this is a small person, I guess they're cute. Uh, and then when it was my little brother, I was like, oh, he's the most precious thing ever, and I will protect him. 
Uh, and so I kind of like, I have, I remember very clearly what it was like to be the youngest child. And then also what it's like, now I know what it's like to be an older sibling. So I think that helped me with writing all of the characters in the, or all of the sisters in the book um, and kind of their different attitudes that they have towards Leo. Some of her sisters, well, one of her sisters is a teen. Um, I definitely have never experienced that. I've never been mean to my little sibling ever in, in life. Uh, <laughs> that. <laughs> oh, no. No, no, no. Uh, and then one of them is, like, very nice and nurturing. And then the, the twins who are closest to her in age, a lot of times they're just like, I don't really, you know, why are people treating you like a baby? You're cool. Come on. Um, and then other times they're in their own world and not really paying attention to her. And I, I feel like I've been on almost every side of, of those interactions. Like with my older brother, I felt him being, you know, mean, nice, supportive, uh, um, inclusive, and then also just like exclusive. And then I've also done the same things to my little brother. Um, so I think that helped. I'm also like, I have a lot of cousins, even though I don't have sisters. Um, so I have, you know, super cool older girl cousin that I like idolized and wanted to do everything she did and she used to write plays with us um and act them out at like family gatherings um so I've always been like yeah I'm gonna be writing stories um and like I did theater a lot when I was younger um and then I have you know my younger girl cousins that I like to kind of like watch them grow up and learn new things and sometimes we're kind of in the same like age range or category like you know we would both we would all be in high school and then I would go up to college and they'd still be in high school and there'd be that like different feeling of whether we were in the same age category or not um yeah so I I write based on a lot of my like experiences with family and like immediate extended family my mom also has five sisters three sisters um so she was one of nine kids I think that math is right um, so I have a lot of her like hand-me-down experience of just being in a really large family <laughs> so that's how I mean like when I started developing kind of the the around your family I pulled on a lot of those experiences and a lot of those things that my mom would say and um, I think there's a specific line in book one about how like you don't really have to make friends when you have so many sisters and that's straight from my mom <laughs> Um, she always said that about school, like, oh, yeah, like, I had some friends, but mostly I just sisters. Well, I think that's both wonderful and horrifying, because, of course, <laughs> with uh, friends, they can be very close for a while. And then when they uh, start doing stuff that you don't want to be around for, and you can just kind of fade away yes. <laughs> quietly. Uh, I'm still supporting you, but from over here until you're done making terrible life choices. Whereas with family, you're locked in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All those life choices are gonna come back, and you'll you'll see them again at the holidays if no no other time. Yep. Uh... So, a question uh, I had specifically a, a, about the book, um, because or about the series, is there is a very large family that you're you're keeping track of just before you get to uh, the spirits coming back, just the yes. official family. So. Um, what tips do you have, one, for keeping those characters straight and keeping them consistent through three and possibly one day, who knows, a fourth book? Um, 
how do you keep them consistent? And also, how do you make sure that you're giving them their due? Because everybody gets their, their moment. We, we have some feeling for every character without taking away too much time from Leo and the, her, her story, which is our, our, our main story. Yeah. Oh, thank you. I love that question. Um, so I think I love I love writing characters. Um, I mean, it's not that unusual. Most writers do. But, you know, some writers are like stronger in plot, stronger in world building. Um, I feel like characters is the thing that gets me into a story and gets me writing. Um, so it's very fun for me to it was very fun for me to kind of sit down with all the characters and be like, OK, who are they? How are they? from each other because it is a very large cast um and sometimes I you know am just having like an off day and I'll be writing and I'll realize that all the characters are making are having the same reactions and making the same decisions that I would make and that's always like a sign that I'm doing something wrong um especially Leo I had this problem with Leo a lot in book one where Leo would want like I would find her apologizing a lot or like you know, being very cautious and thoughtful. And that's not who Leo is. That's who I am. And I would have to, like, <laughs> scrap that whole apology scene and instead have her barge into another bad idea. Uh, I figure it's when little gray characters crave coffee. Like, no, just go get some coffee, writer, and then come back and tell the story. <laughs> yes. I'm sorry, I derailed you. Continue. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I think that's a good indication. So if um, if any of the characters are making decisions or saying things that sound too much like what I would say or decide, um, it usually means that I haven't really thought from their perspective enough. Um, honestly, with Leo's sisters, I gave them a little bit of a, I started off with kind of a one-dimensional template. I was like, you know, Isabel is the nice one and Marisol is the mean one and um, Amma and Belen are nerdy and off in their own world. And then like, as you, you know, as you start writing them, they say things you describe that you have to describe them. So you kind of are forced to make choices about their characters. Um, so I think if you just pay attention to what choices the, the character will like sort of start to develop. Um, one of the things that happens in book three is that Isabel gets a little bit of a, like an unexpected arc. So when I started writing it, I thought it was very clear that Isabel was like the one who would step straight into her mother's footsteps and run the bakery and she was the oldest child so that made sense for her um but everything that she was doing in the books mm, indicated that she that wouldn't actually be the right path for her she was really into magic and she was really into spell casting and learning more about magic but she was never really into baking um and I had to sort of kind of realize that halfway through book two like hey something is something is a little off with this. So I had to, I had to give her that chance in book three to kind of say, you know, I, I'm going to think about what I want out of life and I'm going to think about like what I want to do in the future. So that was kind of fun. Um, and same thing with Marisol. Like she started out as the very rebellious character, but she just, you know, she has her friends in a way, like in the town. She really likes the town. She really, was always uh like jokingly she was she was shirking her responsibilities but what she ended up doing was running the bakery like like doing the sales part of the bakery so um she kind of took an unexpected swerve in book three as well um, all small moments but um it's you know it's not the main plot of book three 
And sometimes I was even like afraid that I wasn't getting it on the page enough. But I think that, again, with side characters, you're allowed to do that. You're allowed to have just the, the moments that like your main character sees and the reader can kind of fill in the rest of that arc. Um, because, you know, that's how we are in our life a lot. We don't see, like, my brother doesn't live in Houston anymore. He lives, um, he's at, at medical school down in the valley, the Texas Valley. It's, yeah, it's a place. It's <laughs> 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 um, about five hours away, if that helps. Um, and so, like, I don't get to see, like, every single thing that's going on. Like, by, you know, when I talk to him, I can kind of connect the dots. And so I think that that's, we're used to doing that with the real people we know. So it's not really that wild to expect a reader to do that with the fictional characters who are more on the periphery not the main character surely by the time you get to book two and you're going out you're doing your school visits you're promoting you'll have those readers that come up and they tell you who they like and it's not always who you want them to like that that happens to me my favorite character is grandma Juanita. really not neither banneker bones nor ellicott skull worth the two stars grandma Juanita. okay i'd like it too but <laughs> So you know, sure you've I got think those readers about... that have their favorite characters and are yeah. hoping that are, they're going to uh, leave you one-star reviews for the rest of your career uh, <laughs> if you you hurt their uh, favorite their favorite character. I think there's something about the grandma characters because yeah, Leo um, talked with her abuela, the ghost, in book one for like one scene, and so many people told me she was their favorite character. Really glad to write, but she gets to come back and be a little more active and be a little. Um, you know, get reclaim a little of her like wild teenager side, um, not just being the wise old grandma all the time. Give your give your readers what they want, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's always one of my reactions to anything a reader says is, wait, if I were to do this, you would pay money for it? Well, that is worth at least considering. Go on. <laughs> <laughs> so I wanted to ask about the Cake Literary family because they're thanked prominently in the acknowledgments. Yeah. Um, and I know that they had some involvement with getting this ball rolling. To, uh, so how, who are they and, and, and how did this, get, this partnership get started? Yeah, um, Cake Literary is a packaging company, which doesn't mean anything to a lot of people. But if you know what it is, that's what they are. Um, they basically are a company that really wants to uh, more diverse books on the shelves. Um, and it's specifically like high concept, fun adventure books um, written by diverse authors about like diverse characters. Um, the founders, Daniel Clayton and Sona Cherapotra, um, were actually alumni of my writing program. So I met them at like an alumni event and there was cheese and I was in the corner eating the cheese um, and not talking <laughs> to anyone. Um, what kind of cheese? They, little... They had the cubes, but they also had the little slices, and then they also had the ones that you slice yourself because they're even. Uh, oh, that is completely understandable. Why would you <laughs> with that kind of action going on? <laughs> there was also fruit, but I'm not so into fruit. I'm more into cheese. Um, I've got lost on a cheese train. So you no. were there, cheese, and somebody from Cake Literary said, "I like cheese. Let's have some together." Or... No, no. So I wasn't talking to them, um, but they were talking to some of my writing friends, and luckily mentioned that they had this idea for a project. They wanted to see this book on the shelf about um, Mexican-American family in Texas. And, you know, we were in New York at the time. And so, like, not as many Texans, I guess, not as many Mexican-Americans hanging around. And I'm sure that because everybody, but Houston is actually more diverse. It's the number one most diverse city in the country. For those of you who were curious, I'm very proud of that. Uh, 
As you should be. Good job, Houston. Yeah. So well, that could uh, have been a better moment. I mean, yeah, unless no, they said, was, like, I, I mean, want was... this author to wear a hoodie with Marvel on its front. Right. <laughs> yeah, no, it was very, very lucky for me because, you know, and I wasn't even standing there, but my friends were, and they immediately came and dragged me away from the cheese and were like, talk to these very smart people who want to help you. Um, so I sat down with Danielle and Sona to talk about, you know, this idea and also and what Cake Literary was, and they had basically come up with the idea of Leo and her family and a lot of the plot of, they had sort of like a skeleton outline of the plot of book one. Um, so people, a lot of times people will ask me, you know, where do you get your ideas? And I'm like, I get them from Danielle and Sona, which is not a super, <laughs> it's not what they were expecting usually. Uh, but, but what I loved about working with them is that, you know, we sat down for lunch and we talked about like what that sort of material that they had. And they were just very, um, col- collaborative outlook from the beginning like I would say like oh you know I think it would be so cool if this happened and they were like oh yeah totally and I'd be like oh and what if you know instead of the age of magic being 13 we raised it to 15 because that's like a you know important age and they were like yes we love it um and I think they just really you know they had this idea they really great idea I think you know people hear magical baking and are already in um (laughs) For the recipes alone, if nothing else. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which, like, and Danielle makes the recipes, because I've mentioned I don't bake. Um, so people hear that, like, they had this great idea, and then they were really, I think, great about giving the idea, like, hey, would you like to write this? And I was like, yes, I have never wanted to write anything more. Um, and so it, it worked out really well, because I just got to kind of take these characters and this, these plot ideas and make them my own. Um, with book two, the outline, we worked together on the outline. With book three, I had like a very clear idea of um, one of the storylines that I really wanted to write. And then Danielle and Sona helped me fill in sort of the subplots, the, the B plots. Um, so I've just been really happy working with them. They they work on a lot of great books. They're, um, you know, the brilliant minds behind uh, The Gauntlet and Tristan Strong Punches a Hole in the Sky. And, um, well, uh, their novel that they actually wrote together, Danielle and Sona wrote together, Tiny Pretty Things, which is becoming a Netflix series. Um, so they're just, you know, they're really great. They understand story really well, and they're using that understanding and, and knowledge of how to, like, really engaging stories to kind of let other writers um, get their foots into the industry, which is, like, super awesome. I, uh was uh, going for the easy laugh with the Marvel uh, hoodie jacket earlier, uh, or the, the Marvel hoodie line. But I'm sure it wasn't just, uh, we need a Mexican-American from Houston. Any Mexican-American from Houston will do. So when you sit down with them, how do you convince them that you are the person to tell this story? At that point, you already had your, your MFA locked away, right? Uh, it wasn't finished, but I was in the in the program, yeah. Um, so I think it's it's one of those like hard to define things. I I really connected with the story, and I think that's what we talked about a lot in that first meeting was um, sort of like, you know, what this story was going to do and why it was an important story to get out in the world and which parts of the character I connected with and which parts of sort of the overall themes I connected with. Um, and I also talked a lot about books that I liked, um, which luckily were some of the books that they liked too. <laughs> Um, that's always a good indication yeah um but yeah I think so at that time and this was 
2014, if not 2013. Um, so different political climate, not completely unrelated, but a different climate. Um, you know, we focused a lot in that com first conversation about how we really wanted to um, put like, infuse some joy into diverse stories because a lot of the diverse stories that had been coming out were very like the struggle, um, not every single one, but you know, it's it still is things that, that one of the big types of book that gets attention is the struggle books. Um, give me like one second. Oh, you're fine. That's a problem I encountered as well. For those who haven't listened to this show before, my wife is black. Uh, Banneker Bones is a biracial detective character I wrote for my son because um, without revealing my age, I, I grew up uh, white in the 80s and 90s, uh, white and male in a small Indiana town of mostly all white people. Uh, and so I had never noticed that, oh, this is a problem with our literature. Everybody stars me. It's great. Yeah. Um, and uh, then I got to a point where my, my wife and I were getting serious. I'm like, okay, well, my son wants to read uh, books about um, young black boys, young biracial boys. What have you got? It's like, oh, here are the Civil War books. Mm -hmm. Here are the books about slavery, uh, books about slavery and civil rights, sorry. Uh, and great, all very important. You should read every last one, internalize right, right. it. But where is the book where the little uh, biracial boy gets to tour a chocolate factory with workers from all kinds of countries? Uh, <laughs> with wonderful medical plans, gentle. They don't have to sing the stupid songs if they don't want to. It's a good life. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So, I mean, that was really our mindset going in was like, we're just going to focus on this, like the magic and the power and the joy of this family. And I was just, I was really excited to to be part to take part in that. Um, I'm okay. <sighs> Being Latinx is complicated. So, bicultural is maybe the better term. Biracial doesn't really work because, like, you know, a lot of Latinx people are already biracial. Or like, it's a you can be any race and still be Latinx. So. Well, honestly, biracial is kind of a dumb term because unless you have <laughs> papers going back a hundred generations, how do you yeah. know? <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so I try to go with bicultural, but then sometimes people don't always like, sometimes people use bicultural differently to being like, you know, lived in one culture and then lived in another culture, um, whatever. It's There's a lot of things, but I have Mexican-American family and I have white family, Irish and German family, Irish-American and German-American family. Um, and Italian-American family. I forgot them. I didn't forget them. But um, anyway, my point is <laughs> I relate to that uh, not necessarily seeing yourself. And I, you know, for a little bit when I started these books, I was like worried that I was overstepping what I knew. I was writing like a not bicultural family, a fully Mexican-American family. Um, and it was a little nerve wracking at first because I was like, am I really, you know, am I allowed to tell this story? Am I the right person? Am I representing exactly perfectly the the Mexican American family? Um, which is a ridiculous concept. If you couldn't hear the sarcasm in my voice, um, is there is there such a thing? Have they have they been identified? Should we all be looking up to them? <laughs> there is a sonic ideal of a Mexican American family, as it turns out. Um, but like getting myself to that point to realize that I was just writing one family and one story and one character. Uh, was a little bit of a, a little bit of a 
it took some confidence and luckily for me i mean i know other people work through this on their own like adults but luckily for me cake kind of gave me that confidence um they said like yes we're talking to you about this topic you know you feel passionately about it you are welcome to come and take this story and i was sitting there going, like i'm sure you could find a better mexican-american writer um yeah that we we don't we could but we don't need to um, <laughs> if we've got you, we love you. Why yeah. are you fighting us on this? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so that was kind of a fun. And then I feel like, you know, writing the whole series has like really helped me grow, grow into that sort of idea of like, oh, like I am enough. I don't have to, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to talk over anyone or say that I am the de definitive experience, but I'm just writing these books that I'm writing. And that's, that's okay. That's good. <laughs> in fact. So at what point uh, did this begin to feel like your story as opposed to a freelance project that you've been hired to? Um, I, pretty early on. I mean, so I think big um, changes that I made in the first book was, because by book two and book three, I was like actively involved in making up the plot. So it like didn't feel at all like it wasn't my project. Um, book one, I started making changes to sort of the materials and outline they had given me, um, partially because they had a character who was not really super described. She was Caroline. Um, she was described as being blonde, and her name was Caroline Campbell. And, you know, I don't remember if they specifically said she was white, but it was sort of the implication. And I have a best friend from college who, you know, is named Claire and is blonde and is half Costa Rican. Not half, because, you know, people are not percentages, but she is, she has Costa Rican family. Um, and so I just kind of, uh, you know, was, was planning out how to write this story where Leo doesn't speak Spanish and she has to get a Spanish dictionary to translate every single page of her, of her book. And I was like, you know, this is going to take too long. And I've been sitting in front of a book with a Spanish dictionary next to me and it's not that exciting and it's not something I really want to write multiple scenes of. Um, so can we get a Spanish speaker to hang out with Leo? <laughs> um, and so I was like, you know what? She's already hanging out with Caroline. She's already planning to tell Caroline about her magic. Caroline can speak Spanish. Like, there's no reason that she can't. So came, uh, I mean, she didn't change. She's still Caroline Campbell. She still has blonde hair. Um, she's still Leo's good friend from, and then she moved away. Uh, but now she has that Costa Rican heritage. And, um... You know, that kind of gave me a place to, and I do this more in book two, but even in book one, work through like some of the natural feels uh, through Caroline. Um, then, you know, book two happened and Caroline took sort of a, a little bit more of a main role um, as the person who, the friend who maybe like wasn't as welcome in the bakery because she wasn't part of the close-knit family. Leo's sisters were like, even though she knew about Le the magic, Leo's sisters were a little suspicious of her and saying like, uh eh, she's hanging around too much. She knows too much. We're not sure if this is okay. Um, and so she, we got to kind of work through her feelings in that book. And then, you know, she gets a little bit of excitement um, as well. And yeah, so I think, and then, oh, and then also in book one, there was some plot things where um, they were just, things were escalating a lot towards the end. Um, and Leo had the police call and then she like had the police called again. And it's like, we don't, we can just, Let's streamline this from on a plot level. 
Um, and I was really like taking whole bullet points off of the the outline. And so I think I sent an email at that point and said like, hey, y'all, I'm uh, changing some things. Uh, I hope you don't feel like I have destroyed and desecrated your work. <laughs> um, and I don't exactly remember what the answer was, but it was basically like, okay, we don't care. Not, not we don't care, but like we trust you. <laughs> um, and so that was, I think that was when I was like, oh, I can really just make this my own. This is like, this is my project. Um, which again is such a good feeling because they're, you know, sometimes right for hire can go very much the opposite way where people are really micromanaging um, what they want from you. And I'm very glad that that wasn't my experience from the beginning of this. You know, just call them back and say, hey, good news. It's now Felice drama <laughs> with an erotic romance subplot. <laughs> Precisely. <laughs> and then is that going to be. Are you doing something similar for the Quidditch book, or is the Quidditch book uh, 100% whole cloth from your mind sprung up? On, not, not that any book is ever that yeah, way. I don't I, know why I'm saying this. That's actually what I was gonna I was gonna say, but no, it is it is 100% whole cloth. Air quotes because it's not a real thing. Uh, brain. That's why it took me six years finished instead of the you know two or well I don't know. I started writing it also in 2014. Um, so I started the first Love Sugar Magic and the Quidditch book at the same time. And I've gotten three Love Sugar Magic books in the time it took me to get one finished Quidditch book. Um, because I was sort of on my own, slogging through the mud of like, oh, I need to learn how to plot. Womp. Uh, <laughs> uh, and then on an industry side, oh, I need to get an agent. Oh, you know, all these things. That so you I did sort of, uh, three Love Sugar Magic books without an agent? Um, so I, I got an agent somewhere in the middle of all that. But yeah, I mean, so Kate kind of, Kate has an agent that works on their own projects. Now they might have more than one. They might have an agency. Um, I'm not totally sure. Uh, <laughs> they had Twitter, an agent. If you're listening, come on the show, talk to me, we'll learn all about it. Definitely. Um. So they had an agent who worked on all their projects. And so I just, I didn't have like my own finished manuscript. So I wasn't querying on my own. So all my stuff just went through Cake Literary. Um, but I did, you know, at some point in the middle of book two, get an agent um, and then get a new agent. And yeah. Figure, I was, so I was figuring industry stuff out for myself, just kind of on a totally separate track from the Love Sugar Magic series. It took a lot longer. And I'm looking uh, at the clock and like, what happened to our time? We had so much time. <laughs> <laughs> we talked So, esteemed audience, will never forgive me if I forget to ask. Uh, Anna Mariano, have you ever seen a flying saucer and do you believe in them? I saw that question. Um, that's such a complicated... Okay, I have not seen a flying saucer. I... I don't want to say I don't believe in them because that's just like a little too, you know, a little too much arrogance for me. Like, I don't know, maybe, but I'm not, I'm not like strongly convinced that they're real things that are like coming and visiting Earth a lot. Um, my dad really likes to talk about Hermes Paradox, like a lot, like a, a lot, very often. <laughs> Um, so I've been having those discussions recently. Um, and I usually kind of end up saying, like, I don't really see if, I guess, if 
esteemed audience doesn't know, the paradox is like, well, if the universe is so, I'm, I'm going to get this wrong. If the universe is so big and if, you know, humans develop to this certain level of intelligence, surely there should be other life forms that have developed to this certain level of intelligence and even beyond. So then why haven't we ever seen any of them? Like, if aliens exist, why haven't we seen them? And if they don't exist, then why do we have such a big universe with no aliens in it? Um, is kind of the, my understanding of the Fermi, of Fermi's paradox. Um, and I always kind of just end up saying, like, you're making a lot of assumptions that life forms would even look or uh, operate on the same planes as humans. Like, I feel like there's, it's entirely possible that they're out there and they're doing stuff and we're just, like, not picking up on it. Because, you know, my imagination is, is pretty, I would say, pretty strong. And I can imagine, you know, all sorts of beings that are doing things. And it's, you know, we aren't perceiving that because we don't have that particular sense. And we can't tell when, um, you know, like there's a lot of things going on in physics that we can't observe. Um, because it's too small or it's too big or it's not something that our physical senses were made to notice because it wasn't important to our development, but it might be important to other people's development. So I feel like it's not that much of a paradox because like there could very well be other life forms. Um, none of this is super answering your question. Sorry. Uh, no, I think it is. They, they could be walking around with us right now. We just can't perceive them. Yeah, basically. Um, there's also the whole like parallel universes thing. So like they could literally be walking in the same space. Um, and then also they could just be that much smarter than us or they could not exist. I don't know. There's a lot of choices. The government knows at least something about them and is keeping it secret. All right. It's <laughs> also possible. Men in black, right? Erasing the, erasing our memories. Could be. Um, although the, the joke of that is if the government's keeping it a secret, why are they so terrible at it? Everybody knows. <laughs> oh, but you know, isn't that really the best secret? The secret that everyone kind of knows, but no one really like fully believes. That's what I'm talking about. Now you're coming over to my side. Join the conspiracy. <laughs> <laughs> How does the Legronios handle their magical business? Because they sell magical things to people in the town. And yet somehow they think it's a secret that they're magical bakers. It's because they just kind of like people, the people who need to know, know, and everyone else kind of knows, but doesn't really. Well, that is something I wanted to ask you about the book. If, if, if you'll make time for, I don't know, let's say three more questions and we'll call sure. it. Not fair. Um, something I wanted to ask about the book is when you're writing a, a tightly focused narrative, we're, we're going to stay with Leo. Her concerns are our concerns. Uh, and then you've got, as we talked about before, the characters to get to as well. Um, but these are people that live in a world where they can bake magic, they can enact spells. And uh, as we learn uh, really in, in, in well, book one, but, but, but book two, uh, they can talk to the dead, man. There's ghosts everywhere. Uh, so how do you deal with such big, I mean, if that happens tomorrow, our whole world is going to change forever. <laughs> Everything's going to, I mean, it's, uh, I'm intimidated by the thought of, of, of that topic topic of oh everyone can see ghosts now some of us can see ghosts proof of the afterlife change your religion this is what it is <laughs> how do you avoid uh, expanding to that level and just running with those ideas but um uh, without closing those doors but but keeping focus on on the story that that we, we paid to read and uh, we want to enjoy yeah that's 
that's an that's another cool, really cool question. Um, I mean, I think part of the answer is is you don't avoid it, but you just end up cutting. <laughs> cutting is a writer's best friend, um, or not even cutting, but like you know, scribbling the notes and then not actually writing them down. I think, I mean, book one certainly deals with this, but I think book two is like the the one that really deals with this um, because I did have to. I mean, I had to. I had to like pick a stance on the afterlife, right? Or like on how the afterlife works. Um, and that was pretty wild. Uh, I just did it and nobody ever stopped me. And I was still kind of like, huh, no one's going to say like, this is wrong. Okay, cool. Awesome. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so I think some of the things I have like a little bit of a building safety net of like, Leo's family is just not the type that's going to, like, try and go out and manipulate the world with their magic, right? That's they are. They're just, they're really just kind of trying to use this as a tiny little boost to help their friends and family, and, and that's it. Um, I, I did have, because I, I would have thoughts like that, um, I did ha have some, like, canonical limitations. Um, so they mentioned that good luck spells and prosperity spells, like, to get more money... Um, have diminishing returns so you can do it once and it'll help you for a little bit um, but if you did it every day eventually it would just not work anymore um same thing with uh leo's well, sister can... true. i'm gonna date myself but when you join the columbia music house if you didn't pay them uh you wouldn't get more cds but that first batch was pretty awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah I'm... yeah so it's like you can you know there's things you can do you get a little bit of power um but it doesn't it's not unlimited um, same thing with Leo's sister, who can pull things out of the air. Um, she has a limitation on that. I don't remember if it made it into the books. I think it did. See, but I don't know, because sometimes I had to cut things, because, like, I knew it, but it wasn't clear. Um, so she does have a limitation on, like, how much she can pull out. And I think there's an actual, um, and I'm, I'm almost positive this didn't come into the books, but, like, she cannot create money, because it would be necessarily counterfeit money. Um, so, like, because it's she, it would be the shape and size of money, but it wouldn't be from the U.S. Mint. Um, so, like, she can do it, but it is automatically counterfeit. Like, that's just a true thing about it. So she, like, it's a limit on her power. <laughs> um, I mean, it would be a very good counterfeit, but, like, you know, so there's, you know, in the same way that you can counterfeit money, but you don't, she can create money out of thin air, but she doesn't. Um, you magic your way out of prison. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, my favorite scene, again, I can't believe someone let me write this, uh, was when she zip tied one of the ghosts. Uh, it happened off screen, but like we saw the zip ties. Like I was just like, what if you could produce very small objects? What would be the most useful thing to stop someone from? Oh my gosh, zip ties exist. Uh, <laughs> so. Um, so things like that, like sometimes I sometimes I really do just I don't stop myself from thinking about them. I just let myself go to the very far. Like I come up with the solution and then it may not actually end up in the in the book um, with the with the ghosts. I think there's enough like in the same way that I don't like disbelieve in UFOs or flying saucers. I don't disbelieve in ghosts. Um, so I think there's an and I think there's enough like people who have thought about that and like tradition of telling ghost stories and thinking about how ghosts exist that like I, I didn't feel like I was making it up from you know like a brand new change your religion like life-altering idea that people can you know that 
souls exist in this sort of other place. Um, and I wanted to give them that sort of limitation also, which is tough to do because I really didn't, I mean, okay, sorry, I really loved the movie Coco, but I didn't love that in the movie Coco, they had to give dead people like final death. Um, just because it felt like just kind of like an excuse because like they're already dead, but they needed some way to raise the stakes basically. So they were just like, Oh, but you can die again. Um, and I kind of like, when I saw the movie, I was kind of laughing at that. I was like, oh, okay, you raise the stakes, but like, does that even make sense? And then I kind of had to do the same thing in book two, where I had to say like, okay, well, you know, certain things come to pass. How do, how do we raise the stakes? What, what threat can you give to a ghost, right? Um, and so I actually ended up with two slightly different ones. One was if, you, if your spirit gets trapped in the living world um, and it, won't, it will be cut off from sort of the like nourishing flow of energy in the ghost world, um, then that's how you become sort of like an angry spirit or like a, like a messed up spirit. Um, so I kind of made fun of Coco, but then I ended up doing something very similar, which is making up a way for ghosts to <laughs> raise the stakes. Um, and then also there was this idea that, you know, when you, not everyone is a ghost. So if not everyone is a ghost, what's the difference? Why are some people ghosts and some people not? And I didn't want that to be like a bad thing um, necessarily because, you know, uh, there's lots of great, lots of great people who you know, in, in everyone's lives, and I assume in my readers' lives, who have not come back to visit them as ghosts. And so you don't want to say, like, ah, oh, if your grandma doesn't visit you as a ghost, then it's because she doesn't love you enough. Like, that's, you want to avoid that sort of thing. She told you to clean up your room, and you didn't. Yeah, yeah. Um, or the opposite, like, you know, some people maybe feel like they, they have a connection with ghosts, and you don't want to say, like, all ghosts are unhappy and miserable, because then, you know, like, both sides. Um, so I kind of came up with this idea that there was the, like, letting go version of ghosthood where you are still part of that, like, flow of energy, you're still part of everything, um, but you are not, like, individualized anymore. You're just part of the flow. Um, which, like, is not that far off from what I think anyway in real life. It's not that far from my belief system of um, how things turn out. But it was also... So in real life, you do believe there's some, some version of afterlife? Yeah. Um, and I mean, I was, I'm Catholic. I was raised Catholic, you know, through that whole thing. Um, and we have the, like, we have the good afterlife and we have the bad afterlife. Um, and, but the bad afterlife is taught to us, at least, as this separation. Um, so I think it made sense for me that like a good ending would be the opposite of separation, like complete togetherness, complete wholeness, one with everything is how um, the grandma talks about it. So, yeah. Um, I should chase you down a rabbit hole of the afterlife, but I'm not gonna. Like really cool topics like this. <laughs> are they related to my books? Who knows? Uh, what? I did want to ask you about tutoring and teaching, but we're, we're so far beyond time. I probably should ask you my final question and, and, and thank you for being so generous with your time this afternoon. Oh, no, Call it a day. You. 
Uh, my final question is uh, always my catch-all for all the, the things we could have talked about, and uh, we just got so busy uh, critiquing Coco and <laughs> talking about other things. Which I love. It's a great movie. <laughs> if I hadn't wasted your time with Flying Saucer Talk, God knows what we could have talked about. <laughs> uh, so my final question is always, if you could go back to yourself at the start of your writing career, wherever you'd like to go back and, and visit a younger version of yourself that uh, authors listening, authors and soon-to-be authors listening now, uh, could hear that might make might have made your writing journey easier uh, and will hopefully make their writing journey easier. What would you go back and, and, and tell yourself? I have a hard time. Like, I, I know yours is the easiest question because it's just like generally anything you want to talk about. But I actually have a really hard time with this question because I just feel like like so many people have really like helped me out and like opened so many doors for me and, you know, like held my hand through becoming a writer that like man I would just go back and be like do exactly what you're doing (laughs) and just continue accepting like all the help and support that people are giving you and like don't question it (laughs) um but really I think like that is the lesson that I learned over the course of from, from before publishing to after publishing or from you know being you know, more of a baby writer to being slightly, slightly less of a baby writer. I'm still a baby writer. Um, it's just like how collaborative the process is and how people can help you and how much you people. Um, like the communities of writers that I'm involved with now or that I, you know, have been involved with, like my debut author group, we still hang out, but like maybe as much internet hang out. Um, they just like have been so important and so helpful and it's not that I didn't know when I started out but maybe I it seemed more scary because I didn't realize how much of a community I would have and how much people would be willing to like give me advice and you know open doors and shout out the books and like tell me when I'm doing things wrong super important also to have those friends who will be like "Hmm, stop (laughs) <laughs> no, we all need those friends do that. <laughs> yeah um so yeah i think if i was going to go back and tell my writer self something or my yeah my younger writer self something i would probably say like like keep your eyes and ears open don't stand by the cheese don't stand by the cheese that's it i mean you know it worked out but yeah like Go and talk to the other writers. Go and find the people who are doing the same thing. Yeah. Just thinking that baked into this question is if, if you're going back in time, why <laughs> are you giving yourself writing advice? For God's sake. Like, give Mitch McConnell a hug as a baby. Like, it's going to be okay, Mitch. We love you. Don't, you don't need to be evil. <laughs> Steal oh, Andrew's yeah. game from Worsen Scott Card and wake up the next. What was that book I, I, I found? <laughs> nope, we're publishing it in our name. <laughs> we're fixing this. <laughs> Uh, Anna, where can uh, uh, esteemed audience find you online? Uh, learn more about you, buy you all your books, all that good stuff. Um, so I have my website, which is just my not my name, but Anna Mariano.com. Um, and then I have Twitter, which is not my name, it's Anna M is boring, is my Twitter handle. So I guess at Anna M is boring, um, which was a super good idea. You should always make your Twitter handles when you're in college. 
uh, and thinking that you'll never use them again is definitely how you should make the account that you will use as an author. Uh, well, there's something else that when you're in the time machine and you go back, make sure you mention that. To there you go. Yeah, just use just use your name. It's just going to be better for everyone. Uh, and then I'm also technically you on love sugar magic. What's that? Don't worry about it. Just trust me. <laughs> Uh, are you talking about that Red Hot Chili Pepper CD? Uh, <laughs> that's a different one. Uh, so yeah, well, and then you can... <laughs> right? <That's... laughs> my brother, uh, my brother has that type one diabetes, um, just like JP in book three, and he has frequently called my series "Blood Sugar Magic." The magic of your blood sugar, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Um, anyway, and you can also technically find me on Instagram. Well, you can tag me on Instagram under the same handle as Twitter, Anna M is Boring. Um, I haven't made that one public yet because it has a bunch of pictures of all my little cousins and I need to get them off before I to the world. Replace them with uh, book covers and Quidditch yeah. picks and all that good stuff. But if you like tag message me, I'll see it. So. Excellent. And as always, uh, esteemed audience, find me at middlegradeninja.com. You know who I am. Uh, follow me on Twitter at mgninja. Look forward to my once-a-week tweet of, hey, I have a new podcast. <laughs> or what did I tweet about the other night? Something about, oh, the Quantum Leap possible reboot. So once in a while, if you would like to hear, like, two tweets a week, mgninja at twitter.com. <laughs> uh, Anna, thanks again for, for making the time. This has been a thoroughly enjoyable conversation. Thanks so much for talking. Um, I always ask our guests to sign us off with the uh, very ninja-like, totally justifies the name of the show, sign-off phrase, hi-ya, and what have you. Will you sign us off? Certainly. Hi-ya, and what have you. Hi-ya.